0: This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino.
1: And I'm Amit Prakash. This week we have on Catherine Stewart, a journalist who works on the religious right in America. Um, You know, that's relevant, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, they stormed the Capitol.
1: Right, right. (laughs) Let's, (laughs) Let's dive in. Let's go. okay uh we are so happy and lucky to have on catherine stewart on the show today uh catherine's a journalist who works on the intersection of religion politics and american society uh, and has been doing so for over a decade her journalism has appeared in the new york times the atlantic the washington post the guardian amongst many other outlets Uh, she's also the author of two books on religion uh and American Politics and Society, the latest of which is The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2019. Um, it's an amazing book. Everybody should read it. Um, and Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: All right. Um, So the reason we reached out to you right now, um, even though you've been on this beat for a while, is that Tony and I did an episode shortly after the January 6th uh, Capitol storming, uh, and we noticed a a lot of weird iconography there. And some of it that I picked up on and Tony saw too was the sort of religious symbolism and these weird mixtures. Sometimes you saw a cross, sometimes you saw, I saw I literally saw a flag that said Jesus with an AR-15 superimposed on the name Jesus. Uh, it was just like, what is going on here? And, and I think maybe like a day or two after our episode, your piece in the times came out. Um, in the op ed section of Josh Hawley's Rage, which is excellent piece. Um, And it was really revelatory. So, you know, ran out, got your book, Power Worshippers, dug right into it. And it's extraordinary what you describe in there. And we kind of get a taste of it with the Hawley uh, analysis that you give us, the sort of upper crust version of sort of uh, American religious nationalism. But what I found interesting, uh, the most interesting in your book was the sort of foot soldiers for Christ, the sort of everyday people who are sort of animated by this. And I think we could argue that the people, the the mob that that stormed the Capitol are these kind of like everyday people. They don't have the pedigrees of the Josh Hawleys and so on, right? Um, or Kavanaugh's and all that. Um, and so before getting into discussing your book and its argument, I want to just play some audio from the New Yorker reporter, uh, Luke Mogelson, who went in with these rioters. It's terrifying footage. It's on the New New Yorker site um, from January 6th. And this clip, let's just set it up a little bit. It's it's when dozens of rioters have entered the Senate chamber and they take uh, Mike Pence's seat and the now sort of infamous uh, QAnon shaman uh, then, uh, leads an entire prayer. So I'm just going to play that, that clip.
3: God, Jesus Christ, we spoke your name. Amen. 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 Prayer, let's all say a prayer know. in this sacred space. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for gracing us with this opportunity. Amen. Thank God. All- Let me take back. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Amen. Amen. Here, for this opportunity to stand up for our God given unalienable rights. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for paying the inspiration needed to these police officers to allow us in this building, to allow us to exercise Mister. our rights, to allow us to send a message to the tyrants, the communists, and the globalists, that this is our nation, not theirs, yes. that we will not allow the America, the American way of the United States of America to go down. Thank you divine, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent creator God for filling this chamber with your white light of love, with your white light of harmony. Thank you for filling this chamber with patriots that love you and that love Christ. Thank you, divine, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent creator God for blessing each and every one of us here and now. Thank you, divine creator God, for surrounding and us with the your divine omnipresent white light of love and protection, peace, and harmony. Thank you for allowing the United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists, the globalists, and the traitors within our government. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray.
1: Amen! Amen! Amen. Amen. Okay. So that's the guy with the horns um, (laughs) leading this whole thing. So what's your reaction to that? How do we explain something like that?
2: Uh, What's on full display here is the fact that there is a movement in the United States that is profoundly and wildly hostile to both democracy and the truth. I mean, the movement has a number of roots, and I think the alliances between many of those who stormed the Capitol uh, with racist and white supremacist groups is clear, but you can't really understand what happened unless you take into account Christian nationalism. We can't really uh, uh, grapple with what happened without looking at the powerful role and exploitation of religious rhetoric um, and the deep connection between reactionary religion uh, in America and and racism too. I mean a lot of these extremist groups that were involved in that uh, riot are either explicitly Christian nationalist or at least Christian nationalist leaning. They sort of promote this idea or adhere to this idea that America was founded as a so-called Christian nation and it is their so-called right to take it back. So, you know, they are hostile to the most profound institutions of our democracy, uh, our electoral system and our, you know, our Congress. They are actually uh, launching, mounting a, a violent attack on our Congress, even as they cast themselves as patriots. So that ideology of Christian nationalism, that wildly anti-democratic ideology really played a a role, a very strong role in organizing these groups and spurring them to action.
1: Great. So one of the things that um you say right that the, in the off uh, outside of your book, um, is that what you're describing is not really a sort of religious movement per se, but it's a political movement that it's kind of got the guise and trappings and and kind of uses the veneer of religion almost as a decoy for a power grab. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, and this is, I am thinking about, comparisons and you do this at the the, sort of the latter part of the book when you talk about these global networks and they're meeting in italy and there's this whole like steve bannon stuff going on um but you know my my mind went right away to the bjp in india uh, and hindu nationalism um and that there's sort of similar analyses that this is not really a sort of religious movement but rather it's politics mobilizing religion Um, and I'm wondering, and this is sort of, a, sort of a question of how do you study this stuff, which is how do we separate when people who say they're doing something in the name of something, and maybe even sincerely believe that, um, is not that right? You know that 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 they believe they're doing religion. They that that they believe that the 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 regime that they hope to impose on us all. Um, is a religious one. Um, And in that way, you know, they're not they're kind of like American Taliban or something like that. Right. You know, like that's that's their kind of approach.
2: Right. Exactly. I mean, I think I think there's a when you're looking at the movement, you really have to distinguish between the leaders and the followers. I think sometimes it's the followers of the movement, the rank and file that get a lot more popular attention. People sort of focus on um their resentments and you know whatever economic disempowerment et cetera, but i think the movement is uh very much driven by um elites and the and key organizations and we look the, the fact is this riot would not have happened without key christian nationalist organizations um, preparing the ground for assault by feeding the conspiracy narrative of a stolen election so for instance the conservative action project which is associated with the council for national policy um, the council for national policy or cnp is uh, one of the core um, uh, networking organizations of the religious right and it sort of includes a number of religious right leaders, as well as many of the donors, um, of Rich DeVos, who used to run it, called the, the, uh, uh, like a the like a coalition between the doers and the donors. So there's this organization, DeVos, right? DeVos. DeVos, yeah, DeVos. Richard DeVos, Betsy DeVos's husband, used to he was uh, the executive director for for a while. Um, so they, um, you know, they promoted this. Allegation, this baseless allegation of 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 election fraud, and they demanded investigations of these spurious and baseless allegations, and they demanded that senators actually um, persist with this uh, these baseless lies. And so sponsors of the January 6th rally which was predicated on that baseless lie of an illegitimate election included groups like Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Moms for America, Turning Point Action which is affiliated with Turning Point USA, a right-wing campus group headed by Charlie Kirk who has worked with Jerry Falwell Jr. so it's important to note the ways in which these um, Christian nationalist organizations were involved in setting the stage for that event and I think We also have to note the ways that um, Christian nationalist rhetoric um, laid the groundwork as well. Many of the pastors involved in "Stop the Steal" events—you know, these events of January—the rally, you know, before January 6th, there was one on January 5th, and then there was another one uh, in mid-December called a Jericho March. These uh, leaders. Really cast the the people attending these events as warriors for God. They said, "I'm going to you know butcher the quotes here because I don't have them in front of me." But one of them said, "You know we are, um, you know men made for war. We are Christian men made for war." Um, they said they just had this very warlike rhetoric and cast the um, the juncture. Uh, of, of the legitimate Biden win of an election as like sort of um, an apocalypse, <laughs> you know, and said we're basically standing in 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 the in the you know in the gap, and it's just us between you know order and the apocalypse. Right. So those kinds of things laid the groundwork. I think you know it's really um, also important to note the ways in which the movement is radically anti-democratic. It, it, it takes the view that because America is a so-called Christian nation, any party or leader who isn't Christian in the right way, remember, you know, Biden is, is Christian, he's Catholic, um, uh, but they, they're accusing him of not being a true Catholic. So they say any leader who fails to conform to their agenda is illegitimate because legitimacy derives not from elections nor from any democratic process but from representing an alleged fidelity to their version of the American past and what they say is the will of God. So that sort of anti-democratic rhetoric and ideology made it easy for these radicals, these really terrorists, right, to imagine that they were being patriotic even as they were attacking the most basic institutions of our democracy, the U.S. Congress and the electoral process.
1: I think, we could talk a little bit about the ideology itself, right? So Christian nationalism, um, it's, it's an umbrella term for all of these different groups and networks that, you know, the, the interesting thing about this book is that all of these, this cast of characters that describe, um, from, you know, retired army generals to, uh, you know, seven foot two basketball players who are running Bible studies in the white house. Like, like like they weave in and out of the whole story. And there's the names keep on popping up, um, in different chapters because there's so many, these sort of connections that are, that are being made. So there's something that's grouping together, which is the ideology. So could you give us just like a thumbnail sketch of what are the core beliefs of these people and what they actually want to impose on us?
2: Sure. I mean, First thing to know about Christian nationalism is it is not a single religion. It's a political ideology. Its representatives insist that the foundation of government uh, in legitimate government in the United States is bound up with a reactionary understanding of um, particular approved religions. So it's an anti-democratic movement. Uh, it's anti-pluralist, it's anti-equality. Basically says the United States is founded on the Bible and can really succeed only if it stays true to this foundation it's not um, united by any specific the- i mean the movement includes ev- many evangelicals but it also excludes many evangelicals too um, including many evangelicals of color and some number of white evangelicals and it includes a variety repre- of representatives of both protestant and non-protestant religion uh, some uh, number of hyper conservative catholics are really important to to the movement and also the movement derives support from some groups and individuals who do not identify as Christian at all. So what unites them is more of like a common political vision than uh, any particular, you know, theological um, uh, uh, fidelity to certain theological sort of um, specifics,
1: right? One of the things that I learned from your book is that they've got, they've really got a sort of they're really well organized, this this movement, and they've got a systematic plan of attack. These like seven mountains they want to climb and like take over all of society and insinuate their, themselves and in all precincts of society, basically. Um, and could you just give us like some examples of what they're for? You know, um, because they're I think I think there's um, at least in the popular press and stuff like that, we get an, the impression of a lot of stuff that they're against they hate this they hate that what is their positive vision of the world to come that they would like to fashion once they've you know climbed these mountains so to speak
2: i think it's all about power and money uh the movement has allied uh, forged an alliance between you know hyper conservative religious leaders and far-right economic interests you know when the leaders of the movement are talking to the rank and file or when they're talking to Pastors, they often work through uh, conservative churches and mobilizing the vote. So, they, when they're talking to pastors about issues that they should communicate to their um, congregations that, um, that they should care about in election cycles, it's all about the culture wars. It's all about abortion and hostility to same sex marriage and things like that. Um, but, you know, when they're talking to um, one another in the forums that they share, and when they're talking to their well resourced funders, it's uh, much broader. A lot of it is about finan- uh, money. A lot of it is about how the Bible supports low taxes and no taxes for the rich, about how the Bible supports minimal regulation, government regulation of business, or no regulation about how the Bible supports um, is against environmental regulations. And this really drives home the fact that this is more of a political movement and they're, they're advocating for a wide range of economic uh foreign and domestic policies that have much more to do with um concentrations of money and power than they do you know the right-wing positions and so-called culture wars
1: so you you locate some of the ideological origins to this to this guy um r.j Rushduni. i don't know if i'm pronouncing his name right but but um i never heard of this guy uh apparently i mean this is the thing is that when you read about um other Americans really that, that are reading totally different stuff than you. And basically they've got a whole, you know, media verse, uh, of writings, uh, particular, you know, biblical exegesis that are like really divorced from standard interpretations. And then they've got a whole bunch of other thinkers who are also saying, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and, and giving their own glosses on it. Um, how does, you know, how is it that su- something so marginal, right? That, that there's this, because this is not really like mainstream, um, biblical interpretation. Um, it's not the stuff that, or, or maybe I'm wrong here. I maybe I, I don't know, but, but the, the origins are interesting because it's like the, you talk about the sort of slavery justifications that they're, that they're, They're sometimes disavowing, sometimes using for their own ends, sometimes basically saying that stuff's okay, um, and repurposing, purposing for the present. Um, All of that stuff, of course, came in the 19th century from very mainstream seminaries and stuff like that. But now they've come to come to the fringes, but yet they occupy the corridors of power or the the people's heads in the corridors. How does that happen?
2: Yeah, well, you mentioned R.J. uh Russas uh, John Rushdoony, and we can talk about him for a minute because he is sort of one of these um, very influential theologians whose ideas sort of continue to speak, even though he's uh, been long gone. So he was a Calvinist or reformed theologian who advocated a return to what they call biblical law in America. And much of the current crop of Christian nationalists are descended from, among others, uh, Rushduni, who's very sort of had this outsized influence in his ideas. The main thing to know about him is that he, like them, was inhen- intensely hostile to the principle of equality. He endorsed an um, austere biblical literalism and rig- rigid hierarchies, which he asserted were ordained by God. So um, he saw it as his job to rescue America from its commitment to what he called godless secularism. You know, this is another term you hear today, sort of these apocalyptic struggle between, you know, our God and order and sort of godlessness and chaos, right? Sort of this apocalyptic struggle. And his theology also included an opposition to government assistance to the poor, which is another concept we're hearing a lot among Christian nationalist leaders today. He cast social welfare system, um, sorry, social welfare programs as slavery to the state. We even hear that term among many uh, Christian nationalist leaders today in their writings. They don't often say it um, out loud, but they they'll put it in their books. So he basically shares a lot with these uh, Christian nationalist leaders of today. So the idea of the United States as a redeemer nation chosen by God. Right. That it should be an Orthodox Christian Republic in which women are subservient to men. You hear this kind of, um, you know, female subordination language in many of the um leading uh, religious right uh figures today they'll talk about they have a sort of nice language for it they'll call it complementarianism and say you know <laughs> wife should submit to her husband as the church submit i don't know they have some language to make it sound nice but it's basically male headship
3: mm-hmm.
2: and they they want of course no one to pay taxes to support the poor um they have this ideology that at some point america deviated horribly from its mission and fell under the control of atheist and or liberal elites. This was the life of Rashtuni's thought, and it remains a kind of cornerstone of Christian nationalism, even as many of Rashtuni's successors really you know, disavowed some of the extreme positions that he advocated or sort of forgot about the origins of their interpretation of the creed.
1: Great, great. All right, Tony, jump in here.
0: Um, I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about um, the kind of effects of social networking or social media and how, you know, 10 years ago, maybe a little more, you know, when we were growing up, conspiracy theories are like, who else shot Kennedy? <laughs> and those were kind of fun. But how um, how how has social media played into this? And do you think there needs to be some regulation? And how would you even do that without you know, kind of really stepping on free speech.
2: Wow, I mean, yeah, we can't, so there's a couple questions here and I'll I'll take them in order. I mean, the first is like, we can't uh, over discount the effect of the far right propaganda sphere. I mean, you know, the movement has invested for decades in a lot of different sort of features of modern political campaigns, you know, data, media, messaging, messaging is huge and it's done a pretty great job over the years of developing this sort of <laughs> like fact-free hermetic um, messaging sphere that does mm-hmm. a pretty good job of separating its uh, folks from the facts. And that's not really a good thing if you want a stable democracy, you know? Uh, and I think that that's um, you know, very consequential. As far as regulation, I, I'm not a sort of, so, you know, a, a policy person in that area but um we we can't forget that um uh, uh genocides for instance in Myanmar were organized and promoted on Facebook <sighs> and, you know like just you know there has to be some means of um uh, uh of um you know prohibiting that kind of noxious stuff from happening mm-hmm. um we've also um you know uh yeah. So that's, you know, I, I don't think anybody has a right to exploit a platform to organize the, uh, a revel, uh you know, the overthrowing of democracy. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. And how do you, this is a question I always have, right? Because I'm, I'm not, I grew up in a very kind of like, we would call it Sunday Catholic family, where we were, kind of religious on Sundays. And then the rest of the week, we were not religious. Um, And, you know, as I've progressed and grown older, I I don't have, I don't I don't affiliate with any religion. I don't have a problem with people that do. But I guess the thing that really strikes me is how does religion, how is religion so powerful that it just keeps getting away with this? You know, I'm and I are Amma and I are like deep in all these books on pre-Civil War. And we just finished a book called The War Before the War. And the thing that struck me was like Abe Lincoln, who's like, who would hate these Republicans today? Um, who, but who's their like poster child for Republicans? Like he really didn't have a religion. It was all fake. Like he didn't really believe any of it. Um, and then, you know, at, the churches would would. You know, specifically say the Bible doesn't really touch slavery, therefore it's okay if you have slaves. come to church. we don't want to lose. And it's like there's this is not new, right? This is not a new thing, especially in this country where these religious leaders uh you know preach God, preach church, and they do horrible stuff. Um, and I remember one other thing I remember, and I get to my point is like John McCain after nine eleven. I'll never forget this. I was just, you know, I was in college and I remember him standing up in the Senate and he had this big quote and everybody roared and he said, God will forgive them, but the United States of America will not. And it was like, we're dropping bombs. We're killing people. And that is how quickly we don't actually really care. I mean, they were murdering police officers at the Capitol, right? But when, what responsibility are like, how does religion, where are these religious leaders saying, oh man, we killed somebody? Guys, we don't, we don't associate with them. Like, how does this happen? Yeah, you know, I, this is gonna sound really flip,
2: but sometimes I think about, you know, religion is like fashion. You can criticize it all you like, but it's just kind of part of who we are as human beings. And we can't forget that many people sort of anchor their uh, uh, commitment to social justice sure. um, and their commitment to treating one another with decency and kindness in their religious faith in The Power Worshippers, I wrote about the sort of um, conflict between the pro-slavery theologians and the abolitionist theologians, and there were a number of abolition. I wrote about 12, a dozen abolitionist theologians who anchored their um, opposition to slavery and their faith and did so from pulpits, and they also used religious language to make those arguments. Um, but they were, as um, Frederick Douglass said at the time, um, in humble pulpits, they were not the well-funded Um, uh, theologians, the sort of, he called them the $5,000 divines. Look, $5,000 was a lot of time in those years. He said the you know, the well-funded, the $5,000 divines are um, on the side of the slaveholder. So, um, I mean, leaders of most um, uh, uh, denominations at that time, not all, but most, had either made their peace with slavery or actively promoted it. And, um, you know, if you look at figures like uh, Thornwell, um, James Henley Thornwell, he was a leader of um, Southern Presbyterian Church. He said, um, I don't have the quote in front of me again, I'm going to probably paraphrase a little here. He said, The parties in this conflict are, he said, it's, you know, friends of order and regulated freedom. Uh, no, he said, uh, atheists, communists, and socialists on the one side. This was, you know, the the people in opposition to slavery, including anti abolitionist theologians, and friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. And he was identifying friends of order and regulated freedom with the institution of slavery, which is a horrific thing to do. But so it just, it really does show that religion can be exploited uh, for political purposes, um, for the purposes of defending, uh, vast concentrations of wealth and, uh, and, and various types of exploitation, but it can be used the other way as well. It's just a kind of powerful force in our society. I, I suppose that's one of the reasons I find it so fascinating.
0: played that clip for you. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the same question, but your reaction today. And when you were, I mean, I'm sure just like all of us, you were watching that go down as someone that studies this, what was your emotion? Like, I know mine was fear and anger. Like what, as someone that actually studies this, what did you actually, what were your feelings?
2: Uh, I was shocked mostly by the, what appeared to be a, an unbelievable lack of preparation. I could not believe that there wasn't a larger police presence. I could not believe that this is a crowd that has been engaging in radical rhetoric for a very long time. We know how uh, most of them are probably, you know, they, you know, there's this sort of very militaristic language. They um, had been promoting this grossly, grotesquely anti democratic lie of a stolen election for, you know, weeks. You know, even sort of quote unquote, you know, reasonable like Mitch McConnell took him five weeks to acknowledge the that the election was legitimate and that all of the investigations, many of them involving Republican officials were actually absolutely based with it, baseless and without merit. And you, you had this um, cohort stoking this sort of insurrection for a very long time, with using very militaristic language, um, you know, the sort of religious nationalist rhetoric You would think that the folks who were in charge of maintaining security at our hallowed institution and our elected leaders would have done a better job of preparing for the possibility, the highly likely possibility of this happening. And that was the part that surprised me the most, to be honest. Sadly, that's the part that surprised me the most. And only now we're learning of the devastating consequences on those who were the few people, you know, small number of people. I think it's something like 146 police officers were were injured, many of them very, very badly in that. Several were killed, several took their own lives after the event, who knows what they saw and how they felt. Um, It was just a really shameful and disgusting Um, episode in in our history and Mm. and I I hope that people don't um, gloss over it as the right is trying to do they're trying to both sides it this is ridiculous I don't see um, uh, folks who promoted the lie of the stolen election looking in the mirror and asking themselves what they did to bring on that horrific event Mm.
1: yeah that's one thing that I sort of wondered about is that I wonder if that gave them pause these, these elites, right. That have they unleashed the whirlwind and they don't know what to do now that they didn't think it was going to go this far, or is this precisely what they want? Right. That, that, and, and the worrying thing, um, that I think we, kind of learn from your book is that their sort of drive to universalization, right? That they're not content to say, this is what I believe. And, you know, this is for my personal salvation. And, you know, that that's, you know, that's what I believe. And, you know, you believe what you want to believe. It's everybody has to believe this, you know, and, but for that, you know, it's the fall. Um, and, and so what's that about? Is that just like a weird, drive for power like a thirst for power and lording it over people i mean they got this weird hang up about kingship and like this very medieval view which is also like it doesn't even understand itself as a medieval view which is like yeah the medieval popes modeled themselves on kings because that was the way power ruled at that time but they see that as sort of fundamentally authentic um What is that, like? where's that coming from, this drive to say it has to go beyond me and even my family or my kid to all of America?
2: Right. I mean, they say that human existence in an inevitably pluralistic, modern society committed to equality is inherently worthless. It's extremely a nihilistic vision. It comes with the idea that sort of a right-minded elite of religiously pure individuals Um, and their allies should aim to capture the levers of government and then use that power to rescue society from eternal darkness and shape it in accord with its own sort of divinely approved view of righteousness. It's a a nihilistic vision and it, it, it basically concludes that the achievements of a modern liberal pluralistic society is of little value.
1: So disturbing. Um. And it,
2: it is, when you mention kings, it's really interesting because remember, they were always um, comparing Trump to kings mm-hmm. like King David or King Cyrus, an imperfect ruler through whom God chose to enact his will. Well, here's the thing about kings they're not, you know, they, they don't have to follow the rules, they are the law unto themselves, and they're not the rulers of democracies. What they say goes. And that just drives home the fact that this really is an anti-democratic movement. Really, does not believe in modern representative democracy, and you can see that in their commitment to the idea of minority rule—that is, rule by uh, people who represent a minority of our country, um, but but and rather than the majority. You know, I mean, in in a democracy, you're supposed to, you know, run elections, and the people who win the most votes or the most electoral votes win well that's what happened with biden and uh and yet they they discount the um the consequences of that election it, you know it made me think about what happened in 1860 right with the launch of the civil war when lincoln won the election the southern states were like all right he won we don't like that we're out right but it almost makes them look reasonable because at least they acknowledge that he won the election. They said, we disagree and we're out, but they didn't lie. They didn't try to gaslight the entire country and say, oh, he didn't really win. They're like, no, we, we're just gonna, you know, pull out and launch a, you know, then the civil war launched. it was very tragic and, and awful. But, um, but the fact is, um, you know, they just didn't promote this big lie, which is what uh, religious right leaders did are doing today and and they're affiliated
0: politicians well and the scary part is like the power of whatever it is this thing is because trump can say i'm hiring mattis he's mad dog mattis he's the greatest i'm firing him he's terrible and even up into mitch mcconnell who like i hate him as much as trump like they're two peas in a pod for me but like we now mitch mcconnell's a traitor like how how is trump the guy Yeah. How Trump, the guy you picked to be the face of the religious movement? Like, that's the thing that's mind boggling is like, he doesn't care about poor people. He's never cared about poor people. He doesn't care about the the, uh, integrity of commitment in marriage. The guy's been married four or five times. He doesn't like his kids. He, you know, he's a crook. He's a total sociopathic scumbag. And somehow this is the guy. I know Tony, like they, he gave
2: them everything they want. Like at every of these, all of these events that I went to, like, you know, yes. like uh, marches for life and right. values, voter summits and like, he or his representatives would stand up and say, I think I gave you everything you wanted. And I think I actually gave you more. It was about judges. Um, the movement is to a large degree uh, led by sort of legal, the strategies led by the legal advocacy group. So they, a lot of what they do happens to the court. So you get the right judges into place. I can't remember, I think the number of federal judges he put into place at the end of the day was like something like 230 or 234, yeah. a right. lot, including three Supreme Court justices. So he gave them the justices they wanted. He gave them ac- political access, unprecedented political power, mm-hmm. um, access to public money. You know, A lot of the movement's activities should be really understood as a desire for access to public mm. money. So. Um, you know and through all of these different means so um you know for them like even a corrupt sociopath was better in their eyes than the um than the you know than uh the sort of uh, than than true democracy right mm-hmm.
0: yeah. or than a guy in a robe that or a guy in robes that wants to feed the hungry like <laughs> right exactly you know, this is this is what they would rather have it's just about power it's really just so so in front of your face, I just—it's really unfortunate.
2: And the movement reserves, I think, some of its most poisonous words for people who are on the sort of more progressive—I uh, would say—religious uh, main, you know, mainstream or mainline or religious liberals or religious left. They, you know, those who fail to identify as religious people of the right sort.
1: It kind of makes sense that they would make their peace with him if not laud him because precisely what you said Catherine about you know he's delivered a lot actually he's really delivered for them and in the same way Mitch McConnell in his gospel of deregulation and tax cuts he delivered for him too you know I mean that they're they're, that in, they're both getting what they want out of him he's uncouth they don't like him personally maybe but man is he a good vessel for for um, getting getting their policy through uh, or their personnel through um, so, one thing, um, and maybe we could sort of end with this is is you know talking about this drive to sort of universalize um, their views on things. I think the most uh, dangerous, insidious um, uh, form of this is their language about abortion. Um, and you've got this brilliant chapter on the sort of secret history of how how they alighted upon abortion as this great issue. Um, So if you could just talk about that a little bit, because I think it's a story that most people don't know. They have this idea that, oh, my God, Roe v. Wade happened. And the next morning, you know, the religious right organized around uh, being anti-abortion. But that's not the case.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the movement has sold us the story that they were united around the issue of abortion, that that's what ignited their movement but it really wasn't. Um, let's remember what happened when Roe versus Wade was passed, right? Um, Southern Baptist Convention actually hailed it. They um, published resolutions in 1971 and 1974 uh, supporting abortion law liberalization. At the time that Roe v. Wade was passed, most Protestant Republicans supported it. Uh, Bet- Betty Ford hailed Roe v. Wade as a great, great decision. Uh, Barry Goldwater, that great conservative hero, supported abortion law liberalization at least early in his career. His wife, Peggy, was a co-founder of Planned Parenthood in Arizona. Um, and even Billy Graham said, you know, I, sup- I believe in Planned Parenthood, meaning his signaling of the right of couples to sort of plan out their, um, you know, have the ability to control their fertility. And he said, I would disagree with the Catholic stance, which is an opposition to abortion. But over time, leaders of this movement were kind of looking to ignite a kind of hyper conservative counter revolution. There were um, a lot of them were motivated with uh, anti-communism. A lot of them were really offended by when the IRS started to look at the tax status and question the tax exempt status of racially segregated schools. The IRS started sort of asking questions about Bob Jones's uh, university, which he was an ad- avid segregationist. He uh, published a, a sermon called, Is Segregation Scriptural? And his view, the answer was yes. <laughs> and uh, you know, he said uh, integrationists were leading colored Christians astray. I mean, yeah, this, you should read this, uh, this uh, sermon. It's just really uh, disgusting and appalling. So the IRS was looking at this guy and be like, why are we giving him tax exemptions? And oh my goodness, the leaders of this sort of uh, new right, they were really sort of offended by this and they were really sort of alarmed. Oh my gosh, we have a God given right, not just to segregate the races, but to obtain tax exemptions for the purpose. So they were looking for an issue that could unite their new movement. Number one was the tax exempt status of, of uh, segregated schools. they were also really upset about the ERA but it was going down in flames at the time, and they were looking at some other issues like school prayer, and they were looking for like a, a, an issue that could unite as they, you know, like the conservative, sort of hyper conservative Protestants, conservative Catholics, and as what Howard Phillips, who was another member of this group called, you know, some of our, our fringe fundamentalist friends, right? Because they were looking to sort of unite the people on the fringes with these other cohorts. And they sort of went down a laundry list of these issues. And when they got to abortion, it's like a light bulb went off. You know, Randall balmer he's a wonderful historian at, at um, Dartmouth. He's written very sort of persuasively about this, it, um, this period of history because he was part of some of those conversations at that time. So it was only over time that they purged pro-choice voices from the Republican Party. And Phyllis Schlafly has written a wonderful book about that process. It took about 15 years to purge those pro-choice voices. It took a tremendous amount of organizing and back-channeling among different cohorts, and it wasn't easy to do. So what we're seeing today is a kind of new pro-life religion But it's really a modern creation and it was created for political purposes. You know, leaders of the movement know if you can get people to vote on a single issue, you can control their vote and you can get them to ignore a lot of other issues that are on the ballot.
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, think like 2004 election of George W. Bush. Yeah. They're like, let's put gay marriage bans on there and get people then guess what right, everybody yeah. forgot about the Iraq war oh uh, yeah
2: they pick these wedge issues that you know they they're really actually quite good at figuring out which issues are gonna be like the wedge, wedge issues and they go for them
1: So yeah. these are the things like they're just better at politics you know they're, they're well they have no rule's they're ruthless. Or at least like it's just like, ruthless. ruthless yeah, yeah they have ruthless.
2: three they have three things three advantages number one is money. Yeah. Uh, number two is internal organizational discipline and um number third is like they've just invested in the sort of key organizations for decades so a lot of organizational advantages but here's where they're weak they don't have the numbers like um you know the their numbers are falling um and that's why they have to double down on gerrymandering and voter suppression and all that kind of stuff and dirty tricks to kind of disenfranchise french disenfranchised people of vote so i wrote the power worshippers in a way that like if you look at the religious like the christian nationalist movement is like a like taking off the back of the watch so people can kind of see how the machinery works and and if um you know those of us who reject the politics of conquest and division could um sometimes uh maybe um, you know similarly invest in uh some of the organizational structures and um, you know, observe some of the, you know, know when unity is necessary, uh, and avoid sort of, um, too much infighting. I know that, you know, you're trying to work with a wide range of people with a lot of different, um, different, uh, you know, concerns, but there are times when unity is necessary.
1: All right. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for thank coming you, on. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the yeah, book. Of course, thank you yeah. for all the journalism. Um, we're going to have to have you on again, I think, because this is a huge story, uh, it's complex, and I, I haven't seen any person else writing about it with such mm-hmm. clarity and depth, so, mm-hmm. so thanks for all you do.
0: Well, that was uh we could talk to her all day i actually do think we should um in the next coming weeks maybe a month we should have her back on i mean we we, we just we didn't even scratch the surface of yeah what there she, is the knowledge she so has so
1: much um i mean she's got a whole other book what have which i haven't read yet but now i'm going to um which is on the how the religious right is trying to take over schools public schools mm. um and she's got you know hints at that in in uh the new book which is all you know really they're after money you know they want to sort of take public money and bring it to god you know that that's like their whole kind mm-hmm. of thing um but yeah she's was, she's was amazing um so yeah very very psyched to talk yeah. to
0: her I like that they don't have the numbers. That was very nice to hear. Yeah,
1: yeah, that was, that was, uh, which is why they're authoritarian, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if they had the numbers, then so I bet they'd be very democratic. Keep Um, pushing
0: progressive views, keep sinking money into education, healthcare, education, uh, I mean, at the college level, and you will see them slowly. That's it. There's no no arguing. There's no reasoning with these people. There's just changing the lives of people that are are, are prone to be sucked into uh this fake these fake organizations that make them believe in yeah. something. Yeah. Well, I think it's very, very
1: simple. I think you're right that it's fake fundamentally, you know, because you know, what Catherine talks about is how this is so elite driven. It's mm. it's somehow that they have biblic they have these pastors who interpret the bible who literally have like pamphlets saying why jesus would be against deregulations, uh, regulations you know why why jesus wants you to listen to your boss you know stuff like that um which is you know music to the ears of like you know big agriculture you know who's then deputizing evangelical latino pastors mm. to tell this to agricultural workers you know do yeah. like yeah. grin and bear it um, and so, just remember
0: yeah. Joel Ounstein didn't open up his church when there was a hurricane there in you go that was everything you need to there know about yeah. the yeah, exactly. exactly. arena <laughs> losers alright man No Politics at the dinner Table is produced by Amit Prakash music by our very own Jeep Baderoy um we actually have an unbelievable newsletter that um, we would love for you guys to sign up on. It's not a, I shouldn't say newsletter. It's its into the category of newsletter, but yeah. it's really a very focused, quick read and a glimpse into what I'm and I are into or what we're debating and talking about. We would love for you to get on and, and get involved in the conversation. Uh, you know, the books we're i'm listening to i'm it's reading that we're fascinated by and you know you have anything to add to that
1: yeah i mean so it's uh at npdt no politics at the dinner table npdt.substack.com it's free it comes out once a week it's Mm -hmm. not long it's a weekend read it's it'll be kind of fun but hopefully you'll learn something too and you know that that's that's that um just just you know pop in your email you'll get it um and by the way yeah
0: just this is what jesus wants you to do (laughs)
1: So I heard. I, I read Jesus, something about this. Jesus, I'm going to really uh, yeah. read
0: our newsletter. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week. See you next week.